So this morning, um, I'm continuing our series about what kind of human we are, and I'm speaking on the idea that grief and loss and embracing it expands our soul. And I suppose I want to say at the outset that um, that is my personal testimony uh, as I look back over the course of my life that I've walked through periods of loss and grief and question and disappointment. Disappointment in Christians mainly, um, fellow followers, <laughs> church, all of that. But I have never lost my faith in God. Uh, and I want to say that my personal testimony is that he is with us and he is faithful. And that I can testify to that in so many ways. It's sort of funny to me that we sang that old delirious song, Waiting Here For You, because I remember very clearly about 15 years ago, standing at Greenbelt, and I had my arms around our daughter, who was going through a tough period, and my heart was breaking for her. <laughs> and Delirious sang that song, waiting here for you with my arms held high in praise. And it was a period of waiting, and he was faithful. And so we do remember these moments, and they're important to remember and tell those stories. I also want to be very sensitive to those in the community who are currently walking through a storm, who are currently walking through grief or loss or disappointment, um, because those are real uh, and those are, and I want to handle those very sensitively. I love this quote to begin with by a really love, a great author I like, Haraki Mukurami, and I can never say his name right. But what he says is, once the storm is over, you won't remember how you made it through, how you managed to survive. You won't even be sure, in fact, whether the storm is really over. But one thing is certain. When you come out of the storm, you won't be the same person who walked in. That is what this storm is about. And if we keep that focus that the storms that we are in, we will not leave them the same. Some of us do and that is the loss. But if we allow ourselves to sit in the storms, to feel it, to face it, and to engage with others and with the community and with the Lord, we will never be the same. We will be more beautiful. Frederick Buchner, if I had to sum up my best advice for life, here is the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. If there was one mantra to live by, it's that. Here is the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, um, I've just flicked through two slides just to work with my uh, Noah, sorry. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has made her life work talking about grief and loss and she says this, the most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, suffering, struggle, loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity, and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness, and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. And if you look back over the course of your life or perhaps your current circumstances, I don't know about you, but when I'm facing something, I go to those people that I know already know their wounds. 
I go to those people who have walked through stuff because they are of comfort to me. They offer me something of the Lord. I don't go to the ones that are hashtag blessed, all is beautiful, all is good, because it's not authentic and it doesn't feel right to me. I go to the beautiful people and I trust that this morning that if you are going through your storm, you realize and you, you get reminded that when you come out the other side, there will be beauty ahead. Mary Oliver, the poet, says, someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. This too was a gift. And we will all have walked through different sorts of darkness. Henry Nguyen, one of my favorite spiritual advisors, he says, we need to be reminded that our cup of sorrow is also our cup of joy. And that one day we will be able to taste the joy as fully as we now taste the sorrow. So whatever your circumstances are this morning, whatever season of life you're in, know that if you're sipping a taste of a cup of sorrow, one day you'll look back and realize there was joy. My prayer is that you feel it now. I want to read this story out of the message from Daniel. It's a very famous it's a popular story. It's a, it's a good story. It's about what was happening in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. It was in Babylon. He was the king. He was very arrogant. He was self-obsessed, and he wanted everyone to worship him. And he, he built this huge gold altar, and when he spoke, everyone was to bow down and worship him and shout, long live the king. And so word got out that three faithful followers of Jesus well, of God. <laughs> Jesus hadn't come yet. Excuse me. Three faithful followers, three faithful men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't bowing down. They were refusing. Furious. So some of his followers went to him and said, there are some Jews here who you have placed in high positions in the province of Babylon. These men are ignoring you, O king. They don't respect your gods and they won't worship the gold statue that you have set up. Furious King Nebuchadnezzar ordered Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to be brought in. When the men were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar asked, Is it true that you don't respect my gods and refuse to worship the gold statue? I'm giving you a second chance. But from now on, when the big band strikes, you must go to your knees and worship the statue I have made. If you don't worship it, you will be pitched into a roaring furnace. No questions will be asked. Who is the God who is going to rescue you from my power? The three men answered the king, your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us in the fire, the God we serve will rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else you might cook up. But even, even if he doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference. We will not serve your gods or worship the statue. Nebuchadnezzar, his face purple with anger, cut them off. He ordered the furnace fired up seven times hotter than usual. He ordered some strong men from the army to tie them up, hands and feet, and throw them into the roaring furnace. They were bound, fully dressed from head to toe, and they were pitched into the roaring fire. Because the king was in such a hurry and the furnace was so hot, flames from the furnace killed the men who carried them to it whilst the fire raged around Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Suddenly, King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm and said, didn't we throw three men bound hand and foot into the fire? That's right, O king, we did. But look, he said, I see four men walking around freely in the fire, completely unharmed. And the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar went to the door of the furnace and called in, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the high God, come out here. And they walked out of the fire. Not a hair singed, not a scorch mark, not even the smell of fire on them. And so the story goes on that Nebuchadnezzar blessed the Lord of God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The reason I share that story is because that image, that visual image of the three of them in the fire, surrounded by the flames, bound head to toe, unable to do anything, is a direct, beautiful visual of the promise in Isaiah 43, what the Lord spoke to his people. Do not be afraid, I've redeemed you, I've called your name and you're mine. When you're in over your head, I'll be there with you. When you're in rough waters, you will not go down. When you're between a rock and a hard place, it won't be a dead end because I am your God, your personal God. I paid a huge price for you and that is how much you mean to me. When you're between a rock and a hard place is how Peterson describes it. And so for those of you this morning, if you're in your fire, or if you've just come out of your fire, know that you are not alone. Know that you are never alone and that the Lord is with you. And sometimes that can't, doesn't feel like enough, and that is where the community of the followers of Jesus come in. There's a quote behind me about grief. It's a normal but bewildering cluster of ordinary human emotions arising in response to a significant loss, intensified and complicated by the relationship to the person or object lost. And so we walk through life and we face grief and loss. It might be a death, it might be illness, it might be jobs, it might be a failed relationship, it might be grief just at how life has turned out for you. You might feel betrayed by the church or church leaders or because you have developed and imbibed wrong beliefs about God and that is what grief is. It is intensified and compli complicated by the relationship to the person or object lost. And so very often we have invested our lives in a certain way of following Jesus. We have taken certain applications of biblical truths and then we have to accept that our lived experience leads us actually to a crisis of that faith, of that belief, whether it's in God or whether it's in the church. And when we are in that time, something has to die. And the challenge is whether that death then leads to resurrection of something new and beautiful and richer and real or whether we continue to stay in that place of disappointment and anger and confusion. Bessel van der Kolk is a, a fascinating psychologist who has made his life work looking at trauma. And he says this, we have learned that trauma is not just an event that took place sometime in the past. 
It is also the imprint left by that experience on mind, brain, and body. Trauma results in a fundamental reorganization of the way mind and brain manage perceptions. It changes not only how we think, what we think, and our very capacity to think. And so neuroscience and all the developments are telling us that when we go through difficult things, we actually find it hard to think or to understand, and the trauma itself is kept in the body. His brilliant book is The Body Keeps the Score. And so what I want to remind you of is that when you've gone through disappointment or grief, your body will remember, your mind will remember, and so don't, you will start to question everyone and everything, and that is normal. But if you choose to stay there, then the trauma remains in your body. And at some point, you have to take a risk to start again. We talk in therapy about taking a relational risk, trusting someone again, trusting the church again, trusting fellow humans again, perhaps trusting God, I talk with people all the time, and it saddens me greatly that when difficult things happen in our lives, instead of our faith in the Lord being a comfort and a source of recovery, it seems to add another layer of question and disappointment and doubt. And I would suggest that's because we've imbibed a poor theology of suffering and loss and grief. Because we weren't promised a life that was going to be beautiful. We were promised a real life. I wanted to speak just when I speak on grief on, on several things that are uh, advice from people who work purely in grief and recovery. They're myths and they're rubbish. Grief is the same for everyone. It isn't. When it's resolved, it never comes up again. It will and it does. It will and it does. Death ends a life, but it doesn't end a relationship. I've heard that people say it always happens in stages, and it's like a line that you go through. You can flip-flop back, and someone else said it takes a year to recover from a grief. Sometimes it can take a lifetime, but at some point we need to risk and start again. Grief is the experience of a loss, and mourning is the outward expression of grief. So sometimes people say grief and mourning are the same. They're very different. And if you're grieving something, you need to find a place where you can mourn with others, where you can feel heard, where you can talk to the Lord, where you can name what is going on for you. And often we struggle with that because we have learnt defense mechanisms, usually in childhood or in our family of origin. So if you look back and you think, what way did my family do anger, sadness, frustration, loss? The one I grew up in, we smiled all the time. <laughs> That's what we did. We avoided, avoided, avoided. We were brilliant at it. To our detriment, and we had to learn new things as an adult. And so it's worth looking back and thinking, what did I learn about that? What did I do? Defense mechanisms, denial, minimizing, blaming others, blaming self, rationalizing, distracting, intellectualizing, or becoming hostile. Renaming yourself, letting it become your identity. Naomi wanting to be known as Mara, just call me bitter, because that's how the Lord has dealt with me. 
And I think that is very important to think about. And I think in his book, Peter Scazzaro says that our churches are filled with unhealthy Christians who leak all their feelings. They don't deal with them, but it leaks out and it can be very unpleasant. We need to learn to own things and to walk towards health and reality. Gerald's sister, a quote will come up behind me, in the car crash he, le- he lost on one day, his mother, his wife, and his daughter. Catastrophic loss. Almost unspeakable. And he says that quote behind me. I think you can all read it. I don't think you need me to read it out for you. But sorrow took up residence in my soul and enlarged it. One learns the pain of others by suffering one's own pain, by turning inside oneself, by finding one's soul. The soul is elastic like a balloon and it can grow larger through suffering. And he also, he's an American man and he described how when he was at the depths of his horror and despair and anger towards God, he wanted to to find a way to find light again. And he looked at nature and he thought about how if I go west, I'll get to the sunrise. But actually the quickest way to get the sunrise is to keep going east and go through the darkness. And that is what he said. And that's what most of us do. We avoid and we think, I need to get to the good bit. I need to get the bit where it's all good. And actually, the quickest way to get there is to go through. Kind of what we were talking about a few weeks ago, the wall and the, the dark night of the soul. As anyone who knows me knows, I love that... Um, when science proves what actually biblical truths are. And again, I'm going back to Bessel van der Kock because he's one of the, this generation's leads on trauma. And what he says is that brain disease, the brain disease model, so that's one model of how people have looked at trauma. It's a brain disease. But it overlooks four very significant things. Our capacity to destroy one another is matched by our capacity to heal one another. Restoring relationships and community is central to restoring well-being. Our capacity to destroy one another is matched by our capacity to heal one another. The second thing that this is language contains the power to change ourselves by communicating our experiences. We can regulate our bodies and our physiology through breathing, moving, and touching. I would say prayer, silence, gratitude. And we can create the social conditions together that allow adults and children to feel safe and to thrive. That is the best wisdom that neuroscience offers us, and I believe it matches what we as followers of Jesus want to put into practice. Bonhoeffer says, and it'll come up behind me, the disciple community does not shake off sorrow as though it were no concern of its own, but willingly bears it. And in this way, they show how close are the bonds which bind them to the rest of humanity. So if we think of a theology, a good theology for grief, I would suggest if we think of that wisdom that comes from neuroscience, we're actually mirroring it as people of faith. Pay attention to it. Look through this book. Look at the Psalms. Look at Job. Look at David. Look at Jeremiah. They paid attention to it. They didn't float over it and pretend it wasn't happening. 
Wait in the confusing in-between. Psalm 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And another, let the old birth the new. I love the biblical kind of model of life that for resurrection there has to be death. And Jesus said in John 12, 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And so when we come to periods of our lives that are painful and sore and we are in grief or disappointment or anger, at some point we need to let the kernels fall and wait for the new growth. And you do that best in community. And I can't emphasize that enough, that in order to, the community can hold you and love you and remind you of God's faithful love. And if you aren't living in community, not telling your story to everyone you meet or the person on the checkout, telling it to people who will hold you and love you and show you God's faithful love. That is the way to move forward. The other thing um, Peter talks about in the book is accepting our limits. And he sums it up in this brilliant way. <laughs> Getting off our thrones and joining the rest of humanity is a must for growing up. <laughs> Let's think about that idea. Getting off our thrones and joining the rest of humanity in their brokenness, in their pain, and in their loss is a must for growing up. And so my question to you this morning, there'll be more for your work in your groups, what do you need to grieve and let go of to allow the new to emerge? What seeds are you holding that will only ever produce one seed? What do you need to set down and say, I need to let this go once I've owned it and worked my way through it? And what could possibly emerge with a deeper faith and bring a new day? I want to end this morning by, I've always struggled with the story of Job simply because I can't really connect with it. The, the idea of losing all your children and the sores. And I, I found it hard to get myself into that story. Um, but it's a beautiful story of how, how, God, how, how you remained faithful. But I want to end with this story of Horatio Spafford. What an amazing name in 1870. He, sang, he wrote that beautiful hymn, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And I remember at certain points in my life singing that song and feeling a little bit like, I wish I could say that. I wish that was my, my testimony. And sometimes I think we have to say that. It's the AA idea, fake it till you make it. Say it as well with my soul and in time the feelings will catch up. But his story is utterly fascinating to me. He lived in Chicago in the 1870s. He was a lawyer. He was a wealthy man. He had five children, four daughters and a son, Horatio. And he was a man of faith and he was very good friends with the very famous of that time, evangelist Dwight Moody and Sankey. You know, do anyone sing old hymns from there? 
Nobody's as old as me. Okay, fine. You are good. Yeah. <laughs> we did. So anyway, he, in 1871, his four-year-old son died, Horatio. The next year was the Great Chicago Fire, and they lost their property, they lost their wealth, they lost a lot of their identity, and they were grieving, hugely grieving. And so he decided that as a way of lifting their spirits, he and his wife and his four daughters would go on a ship called the SS Ville de Havre, and they set sail in 1873. They were going to join Moody and Sankey on a tour. I think that's quite a cool idea. So on the day before they were due to leave, an emergency in his work happened, and Horatio decided to stay. And the ship set sail to go to Europe, and they hit another ship, mid-Atlantic, and in 12 minutes it sank, and 226 out of the 307 were lost at sea. Three days later he got a telegram to say that Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanetta, his four daughters, were all lost. And his wife had been carried on and taken to Wales. There was great concern for her health and well-being. She was in deep, deep distress, and so he knew he had to go to be with her. And so he traveled across the Atlantic to be with his wife in Wales. He thought he was going to lose her by her own hand. And as he was on the ship, the captain called him. He was down in, the, in his room, and the captain called him up and said, we've worked out, we've worked out that at this point, this is where your family were lost. And so they called him up to see and to grieve and to, to seek the spot where his beautiful daughters had died. And he went downstairs and he wrote this hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my soul, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So he got to Wales, he met Horatio and they returned to Chicago. Four years later, he had another son and they called him Horatio. In 1878, they had a daughter called Bertha and in 1880, they had a daughter called Grace. Unbelievably, Horatio died at the age of four. He lost six children over the course of his life. And their wealth returned, but in 1880, they decided to move to Israel and they lived the rest of their lives in a colony outside Palestine, serving the poor and the needy. What a story of faith. What a story of loss. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And so I want to end there as we come to the table. And I want us to think about this song. We're actually going to sing it. It's, up, it's going to come up on the screen. So if the band will come up and then we'll move into the table. And I want to say that if you're in the midst of your difficult days, you're singing this as a prophetic statement. You're not denying the days that you're in. You're not denying the disappointment, the anger, the grief, whatever it is that you're facing, but you're saying, I still believe, because what his message, 
Horatio's message of that hymn is all about, and I think it's quite countercultural for us. He is talking about, my eyes are not on the grave, but the sky. So he is living his life with an eternal perspective. And sometimes we forget that we are just here for a season and that we will spend eternity with him. And perhaps if we could use that length lens, we would be able to say more readily, whatever my Lord, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So, Redeemer, please stand. We're going to come to the table now. The song is going to come up. Hopefully, some of you might know it. If you don't, just let it minister to you because it's truly beautiful. Come and take um, the bread and the wine. Paul and Lorraine and Joel are going to serve us the bread and the wine. And I wondered if, <laughs> I wondered if when you came for communion today, would you be able to whisper to yourself or to the person who gives it to you, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. So we're going to sing through this and then the band are going to lead us in another song of worship and, and then we'll, we'll come to an end. So Redeemer, come and hopefully this will work.